We are in part three of our Nehemiah series that we entitled Building God's Way. And I entitled today's message, Our Own Worst Enemy. And I, I want to begin by drawing your attention to, if you follow the app, it would be the fill in the blank. Otherwise, you're just taking notes, right? You can take those. But I want to begin with just a couple questions. Why do some companies thrive while other companies don't? It would be interesting if you could just say, well, some companies have high quality product and some don't. But I have been to Walmart and Target and there's a lot of garbage on the shelves. <laughs> so I am not going to say that everything that is produced and every company that is massive builds great stuff. Quite frankly, I don't think that that is the case. I think just like in the same way that the most popular bands are not always the best bands, I would say not all, you know, the most popular art isn't always the best art. I would say in the same way, not all companies that produce products popularly are all good products. I don't think that product actually is the number one thing that determines whether or not a company does well or not. You know what I think it is? Leadership. I would much rather invest in a company that has an inferior product with great leadership than an excellent product with terrible leadership. You see, it's, it's almost impossible for us not to have heard of a Christian leadership guru by the name of John Maxwell, right? I mean, most people have heard of that. My favorite book that he wrote was called 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And in that book, he said a line that he has become famous for. He said, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. I would suggest to you that our Christian faith is evidence of that. We're called Christians, why? Because Jesus Christ is our leader. Therefore, we follow along with him and incredible things happen. Here's the fill in the blank on that app, or if you wanna take notes, just write this down. The right work requires the right leadership. The right work requires the right leadership. What does that have to do with us? We are in a series and in a year where we're trying to build our lives to become all that God intended us to be. That means if we want to build God's way, we need to lead ourselves rightly. Amen. See, I, I, once again, I always want to push you towards intentional living. Not where I just hope I'm going to grow up to be a great Christian person. Oh, I just hope that everything comes in line. Oh, I just hope that I become mature in my faith. We need some intentionality and some purpose to lead down that way. And part of that is just leading ourselves well. Because it's one thing for other people to lead us, but we have to have some ownership of the concept of leading ourselves. Hmm. Most of us are not quite as in control of how we live as we would like to assume. If I asked you and I said, who's the boss of your life? And after we wrote down Jesus, because Jesus is always the right answer on a church quiz, right? We would say, what? Well, I'm in charge of me. I get to decide what I do. Are you sure? Because I don't think that's true. And you can find out, here's the question. 
are you living the maximum life and are you completely content with every part of your life? If your answer is no, then you're probably not as in charge as you think you are. Because why not? Why isn't it perfectly the way you want it? Because you may not be the only one at the controls. Let me give you an example. Most of us live pushed around by passions, cravings, habits, needs, wants, addictions, fears, and the list goes on. Why do we do what we do? Hmm. It'd be so neat if we just said, because I chose to. But we're smarter than that. There's a bunch of stuff in our lives we would rather it not be there. And there's a bunch of stuff that is not there that really needs to be there, yeah? So we need to take the reins of our life and start building on purpose. This is where we're going to be in the Bible today. Would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5? We're going to be walking through the story once again of Nehemiah, this Jewish man who went back to rebuild the holy city of Jerusalem. And it was tough. The first time we got together, the part one of this series, God lays a vision on his heart and he has to wrestle through, Lord, are you really talking about me? Do you really want me to do this? This is a massive job. I'm not the right guy. But God said, yes, you're the man. Second time we got together, part two, there was just attack from everyone that didn't want it to happen. And I was telling you that when we build God's way in our lives, as we are becoming who God wants us to be, we have enemies that don't want that to happen. Who are the enemies of a Christian? We only have three. The world, the flesh, the devil. People are not our enemy. People are not our problem. The world, the flesh, the devil, that's what makes everything so challenging and difficult. That's our opposition. So when we get together today, here's the point of today. You see, while Nehemiah is doing a difficult job and getting attacked from the outside, he also has problem in his own camp. Like even the people he's trying to serve cause problems. And that's we gotta figure out, how's he gonna lead out of that? Because, man, sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Yeah? Hmm. Pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our own flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. We're all Jews. Our children are just like their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. All right, let's pause there for a moment. What's the problem? When Nehemiah came back to do the rebuilding, there were Jews in the land, but they were super poor. And they live in an agricultural society. So when Nehemiah brought in his team to do the rebuilding, a lot of people left a lot of stuff at home and they were hoping that the land would help support them while they're there. And all the Jews came together as a community and they were just trying to make a living, but then a famine hit. 
A famine means there's not enough food. In an agricultural society, that's your entire economy. So the economy drops out, everything gets difficult, and we find out that everyone's so desperate they're even selling their children into slavery to make ends meet. But what's the main problem? The people who have the money are taking advantage of the bad situation and making it worse for their fellow Jews. The problem is the Jews are taking advantage of the Jews, and Nehemiah freaks out. So take a look at verse six. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest from your own brothers. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but now you are even selling your brothers that they may be sold back to us. And they were silent, and they couldn't find a word to say. When you hear stories like this, how do you think it really happened? Because, I mean, when I read the Bible, I just think about real life. Was it really that there was a group of wealthy Jewish men and women going, you know what I could do? I could sell my fellow Jews into slavery. No, it's way more normal than that. Here's what I think happened. All right, everybody, an economic recession just hit. We need to lock down our funds and hang on to what we have. I have no idea how long this famine is gonna last. Everybody get real conservative once again, don't deplete your savings. Anywhere you can see to be able to make an extra dollar, that's the only way we're gonna kind of make it through this. So, hey, if you have money, by all means lend it out, but this is an opportunity. We need to be able to make some interest on what we loan. I think that's actually how it started. But then, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse, incrementally. And it took a good leader to lift his head up from the chaos of the moment and go, wait a second, something's wrong here. Like, I appreciate that you think you just kind of walked into this and you didn't mean to do something wrong, but are you looking at what's happening to our society? You acting normal is wrecking our society. Oh, sure, you only took some interest from those people, and you only took some interest from those people, but collectively, we are wrecking our society. And it's totally wrong. The idea that our children are being sold into slavery, I came here to rebuild a city, to rebuild a community, and you're tearing it apart. Out of what? You're looking out for number one. You. And this is where it gets personal. Because we read this story and we're like, man, those people are jerks. You sure that's not us? Let me ask you real quick about how you plan your finances. When the 2008 recession hit, what did you do with your money? I bet you anything you locked it down because you didn't know how long it was going to last. I bet you you were looking and scouting for any possible opportunity to see if you could still make money during a difficult downturn. I bet you anything, your spending shut off. What happens when the spending shuts off? 
the economy shuts down. You know how we keep hearing these words in our society, whether you agree it or not, we keep hearing words like stimulus. When 2008 hit, there was a buyout. A buyout is just a big stimulus. So why is the government giving away free money? Because they know that our economy needs people to buy and sell, but when they get afraid, they lock down. And when you lock down, the whole thing comes to a grinding halt. So they're trying to infuse money into a situation to stir it up again so people will spend. Now, once again, whether you think that's a great policy or not a great policy, the bottom line is when people get afraid, they lock down, right? Here's the problem with that. It's justifiable selfishness. Because who's really going to go after you, right? If you hold on to everything and you become less generous during a difficult time, who's going to fault you? But what if it just exacerbated the selfishness you were doing normally? What if you weren't very generous in the first place and now you're even less generous? Huh. This is where it starts getting a little bit crazy. I don't think it's because everyone intends bad. I just think people get afraid. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, let me highlight one other problem with the Jewish people because it ties into our problem. The minute things got desperate and selfishness took hold, unity began to break down. When we personally shift from God building to self-preservation, what happens? We lose. Why? We will not share when we don't feel like we have enough. We will not extend grace when we feel we are being taken advantage of or living in unfairness. We will not help another person build when we feel like our own house is crumbling. When we're afraid, we're not generous. As long as we feel we don't have enough, we won't bless other people. But I have a question for you. If you wait to be generous when you have an overflow, how often are you going to be generous? I don't know about you, but in my life, I don't just have sudden windfalls of cash, right? Well, it was a Wednesday, and then money fell from the sky. Like, that's not a thing. It kind of feels like every day is kind of the same, right? You know, and you're just kind of doing what you're doing. So if we're talking about having a generous mindset, you have to have the mindset whether or not you have the perfect circumstance. Does that make sense? Hmm. Let me tell you a little story. In the late 80s and the early 90s, I was involved in a movement, uh, in a training, in a mindset of apologetics. Anybody ever heard of apologetics? All right. So apologetics is basically the idea of going out and looking for facts and truth to defend the Christian faith, and it's really doing a lot of study. And I was already obsessed with the Bible, but I became even more obsessed with the Bible, and I was very much trying to figure out truth. 
Everything for me was about truth. What is right? What is wrong? What is accurate? What is my reality? What is not, right? If somebody said that they believe in evolution, why do I believe in creationism? And, and so I was doing this constant for years. Well, one of the elements that comes into the world of studying apologetics is you become very critical of other movements that you don't agree with, right? So uh, my spirit became very critical, and, and one of the favorite things to attack at that time was a new emerging movement out of the charismatic circles called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. You, you may have heard it about health and wealth, or name it and claim it, or you know this idea that everyone, God wants everyone rich and wealthy, and you just have to have enough faith, and then more stuff comes in. Well, boy, I lost my mind, Right? I mean, internally, I was so rude. I was so mean. Now, externally, I was way more gentle in my teaching. But internally, I just sliced and diced those folks, right? Because, wow, I don't see that in the Bible, and, and that's not how Jesus lived, and, and boy, I had a lot of attitude. And then I realized after a number of years that as I was throwing out the bathwater, a baby flew out. And I went, oops. You see, because we as humans couldn't possibly allow nuance, we either have to be all one way or all another way, right? We couldn't possibly live in the large middle where God is. We have to be all for something or all against something. So I began to realize, oops, I lost something. And here's what I lost. A mindset of abundance. And I turned around and I looked at the people that were like me, very critical. And I realized they lived with a mindset of scarcity. And they complained all the time, grumbled all the time, and constantly talk about how God was withholding, right? And I began to realize that there was, there was always a problem. It was like God was doling out suffering and, and you only want to pray for the basics because the Lord only has like 13 bucks. And if you get six, somebody else doesn't get it all, right? And I realized this. When you see God is desiring to bless you abundantly, you loosen your hands on your money because you believe that more will come. And it was only in that camp that I heard the phrase that you can't outgive God. You see, I found out that when you see God as abundant, you can partner with other churches because there's more than enough to go around. And it was in that camp that I learned that high tide raises all ships and that revival's good for everybody. You see, when you see God as abundant, you forgive because of the lavish forgiveness and grace that's been poured into you. So it was in that camp that I saw an expectation that people could be healed of hurts and pains. And I realized when you see God as abundant, you pray as if your prayers don't diminish the storehouse of God and you can ask for as much as you want because God always has more. And it was only in that camp that I learned that my father has a cattle on a thousand hills. What's the bottom line? I don't agree with all the theology of the word faith movement or the prosperity gospel. But there is such a beauty in abundant thinking that our God 
is not just eking out little tiny blessings for his people. That's not correct. Our God loves us and wants us to be in joy. It doesn't always, our, our blessings don't always come in wealth. I get that. But why do we view like God only has a little bit? Why are our prayers so tiny? Why are we always holding back? Why are we always thinking that there's barely enough to go around and that if you get blessed, I have to be jealous because you took my blessing? Why can't we believe that there's blessings for all of God's kids? Why can't we believe that when the Bible says it was shaken down and running over, why can't we believe when God's word says, if you continue to pour into my kingdom, I will continue to bless you? Why is that wrong? It's biblical. Man. We just cannot live in a mindset of scarcity or we're gonna hang on so tightly we will never be generous people. Make sense? Yep, nobody thinks so. Let's pick it up in verse nine. Here we go, Nehemiah chapter five, verse nine. So I said to them, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest and return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. And guess what the Bible says? Everybody agreed. What? When's the last time you publicly humiliated somebody super wealthy and they went, you're right. I will give it all back. Like, that's a miracle, people. You thought parting the Red Sea was a miracle. Try getting people to agree with a rebuke, right? Like, what? There's no way. But it required a leader to be able to see what collectively was going wrong. And the only way to do that is to get out of the tyranny of the urgent. What does that mean? It means every day is going to be demanding on you. So how do we make this personal? I don't know about you, but I don't tend to schedule out time for me to personally get away with the Lord and just reflect on who I'm becoming. Like, it almost feels like, well, we got stuff to do today, and we got this, and I got my job, and then I got this, and we got this with the kids, and we got, you know, isn't that how a normal life goes? But wouldn't we change the trajectory of our life a little more if we quieted the noise and we said, Lord, who am I becoming? Who do you want me to be? Hmm. I want to encourage you to do that. Here's the other thing I thought was interesting. Nehemiah, call it as he saw it. That was super risky. I mean, he just called out all the wealthy people and said, you're out of line. Do you understand how that could have been bad? They're the ones probably financing his operation. Do you know how many pastors won't say things because they're afraid that the wealthy members of the congregation are going to leave? But Nehemiah did it. Why? Because it was right. So here's my challenge for you as you're growing in the Lord. Is it possible that you have mistakenly believed that to be a better Christian, 
you only need to be nice. Anybody ever bought into that one? We have a weird thing in our culture where we get super dysfunctional because we believe that Jesus was always nice. Now that's a misread of scripture, by the way. Jesus was not always nice. The whole throwing the table over and whipping people was not nice. He was right, but it wasn't always nice. He was kind, but it wasn't always nice. Nice isn't always possible when you're trying to achieve health. What do I mean? It's not nice to reset a broken bone. That hurts. It is not nice to put your kid on time out when they still wanna play, but it's right. It's not nice to turn your boss in for sexual harassment, but it's right. Too often, Christians avoid tough conversations because it's not nice. We avoid conflict. And that allows so much dysfunction into our lives. Maybe today God is whispering to you and saying, you do realize what you're observing needs to get called out. Either in your own heart, in your own marriage, in your own family, in your friend group. I don't know who it is. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in your church. I don't know. All I'm telling you is that if we constantly put things away and say, I don't want to do that, that won't make me look nice, dysfunction will continue to reign. And I just don't think that's wise. It's certainly not healthy. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Moreover, from, time, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, he now has a title, in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. <laughs> He lays out this generous thing. He serves and feeds 150 people out of his own pocket. Not only was he not taking a salary because he was getting a bunch of money, he was still, remember he came from Persia, worked for the Persian government, still had a salary from the Persian government. He did not come into a situation and take advantage of it. He's like, listen, God has already blessed me. I'm not here to take advantage of it. What I'm here to do is help people. And out of my own pocket, while they're going through a famine, while they're suffering and hurting, I will do whatever I can to alleviate their suffering. Wouldn't you want to follow a leader like that? I mean, that's incredible. What was his motivation? The fear of God. See, any great leader knows who you really work for. You really work for God. And he's always watching. And you'll be held accountable. So this whole business about how you can abuse your leadership, yeah, that doesn't work. God always sees it, right? Let's pick it up in chapter six, verse one. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah, those are the bad guys, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no more breach left in it, although up to that time I hadn't set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together. Well, let me paraphrase how the story goes. They said it five times. 
And he was like, I'm busy, can't meet with you. He knew full well they were trying to lure him out there so they would hurt him. He's like, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. And then finally, they, th they put in a threat. And they're like, you know what? We're gonna go to the king of Persia. And we're gonna tell him, you just wanna build that city because you wanna call yourself a king and you're gonna lead a revolution. And the minute he finds out about that, he's coming for you. Is that what you want? You need to meet with me right now. Nehemiah said, you are just making stuff up. I'm not meeting you. And he shut down their plot. Here's what I thought was interesting. Here's a super generous guy giving everything he has, doing everything right, and he's still getting attacked. Don't you sometimes feel like you signed a contract with God that if you do everything right, stuff should go really easy for you? Like, isn't that kind of how our prayers are kind of formed? God, come on, I'm doing my part, right? A little something for the effort, right? I mean, that's how we, that's how we pray. God, things are still miserable. I'm the good guy. God never signed that contract. That's not how it works. And sometimes we get really mad and we say, fine, then I don't want to serve you. That's where things get dangerous. Now, the attacks that the enemy was doing, I call those psychological warfare. You guys know what psychops are? Psychological operations are the idea where an enemy tries to get in your head. Right? You're trying to rattle the other person. And that is something that our enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, they're always trying to get in our head and trying to mess with it and trying to get us to think different thoughts. But I want to highlight one piece about this. What if our own worst enemy is ourselves? What if the biggest problem is not always the world, the flesh, the devil, it's just us? Then how do you fight? How do we silence our inner critic and our own condemning voice in our head? Well, let me tell you how this works. Our minds only regurgitate our influences and our brains repeat back to us what it hears, whether it's a good idea or not. I don't know if how many of you ever saw, uh, you need to raise your hand. Did you guys see the Social Dilemma documentary? It was about uh, social media. Okay. So on this documentary, uh, they went through and they were talking about how social media is designed. And one of the things they were talking about was the algorithms behind platforms like Facebook and Twitter and all these different places, right? So if you were going to talk about uh, how TikTok works or any of those things, how do the social platforms work? Well, they're based on mathematical algorithms, and they're based around a concept of interest. And what it meant by that was that what it wants you to do is repeat to you what you like. So if you click on something, in the algorithm it goes, oh, they like dog food, because you click dog food to buy your dog food. And so it says, you want more dog food. So the algorithm shifts and it starts bringing in ads for dog food. Then you click something else and you clicked on shampoo and it was like, oh, they need shampoo. So it spins that around. Then you click on a news story of nuns surfing in the Arctic Circle. And so it's like, whatever, uh, whatever floats your boat, I'm good with that. So it starts sending you more non-surfing stories. Now, the way the algorithm works is it creates a constant same barrage that you will only hear what you want to hear. 
it is never designed for morality. It is only designed for interest. So it can't determine whether what it's sending you is real or fake, doesn't know whether it's good or bad, it just knows you want more of it. Did you know that our brains work the same way? Our brains aren't sure on what to hang on to and what to discard, so they just start bringing up thoughts that you've heard in the past. But what if you grew up in an abusive environment? What did you hear? Now, is that good or bad? Your brain doesn't know. It just repeats it. You're worthless. Wait, wait, hold up. Are you worthless? Uh, No, the Bible says you are not. The Bible says you are precious. The Bible says that you're a child of God. The Bible says that Jesus came to rescue and save you from your sins, that he would be with you forever. The Bible says all sorts of stuff about you having power and authority and that the Holy Spirit dwells in your own chest. Like if we wanna talk about value, that's what the Bible really says, so it's not true. But your brain doesn't know that. So, bing. It got a click once before. It wants another click. You're worthless. And when you validate it, you click it again. And it sends that same pattern over and over and over again. You see, I'm not Pollyanna enough to think that we can eliminate negative voices in our life. I don't think that's possible. So we have to be better at filtering. Does that make sense? We have to figure out on what not to validate and what to discard and what to accept. Because really the heart of it is we're trying to get more of God's truth in us and less lies, right? That is all about Christian identity. I believe that one of the most important focuses for us to do in our lives is to focus on who Jesus is, what he's done for us, who we are in light of him, and how we can live for him. I think that's our whole goal. That's what we need to be about. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to lead ourselves rightly, and that means silencing the lies. In chapter six, verse 10, a horrifying story develops. The bad guys hire a prophet to try to lead Nehemiah to hide in the temple so they can make fun of him and ruin his reputation. They hired a prophet. Shouldn't you be able to trust religious figures? Shouldn't you be able to believe everything that comes out in your church? Shouldn't you be able to hear any Christian leader at any time and trust what they have to say? Quick question for you. Is there such a thing as spiritual abuse? You better believe there is. Do you understand how insidiously evil that is? The very people you are taught to trust break that trust, and hold it over your head. Nehemiah wasn't having it, and he was like, hold up. You don't sound like my God. I'm not following you. But how messed up is that, that the enemy would do such a low blow that he would use a spiritual voice to tell you a lie? So what do we do about that? How are we supposed to filter and sort out what's from God and what's not? right? We need to build filtering systems, not walls. Because there's a bunch of us that once again, our pendulum swings too far and we say, you know what? I don't want anything that could possibly be weird or messed up. 
and we live in a little tiny fortress all by ourselves and God isn't with us. We need to learn how to filter, not how to disappear. We need to learn how to filter, not how to hide. We need to learn how to filter, not how to wall it off. Because God is in the mystery. God is in the mess. The Holy Spirit and all that he desires for us means there's gonna be a bunch of stuff you don't understand. Is it all dangerous? No. So much is glorious. But if you just want to live safe, you're going to live very quietly and all by yourself. And I don't think that's what you want. If we're going to build God's way, we need to lead ourselves rightly by learning how to sift and sort spiritual influences. All right, let's finish it up. In chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. A smart enemy knows when they're beat. As long as it was just Nehemiah's idea, they could shut it down. The minute God got involved, oops, they better step back. Question for you. When's the last time you built something that only God could do? Because I think that a lot of us are relying a tremendous amount on our brains, intuition, and strategy. I think a lot of us are building our lives based on our own knowledge base and doing what we think is right but where is the room for God to build something in you? Where is building by faith? Where is the area in your life where if the enemy attacks, that's God's battle, not yours? And you can step back and say, Lord, they're coming at you. This isn't even about me. There is such a peace knowing that when God builds something, God defends it. And that it's not just held up by your own strength. Maybe we need to start building some stuff that only God can do. Amen? Amen. All right, let's finish it out. Chapter 7, verse 2. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. What does that mean? Well, to do a new thing, Nehemiah installed new leadership. So let's make it personal as we close. What influences need to change and get out of your life today? What influences are not life-giving to you? What circles do you run in that aren't healthy? What voices do you need less of? What programs on TV and the radio do you need to let go of? What talk shows and news programs do you need to swap out? If we're going to build God's way, we need to lead ourselves rightly, and that means changing some leadership now and then in our own lives. You're operating off the sum of your influences. Don't we need to maybe make sure that the voices speaking into you today are life-giving? I wrote, I wrote in my notes, my concluding line was this, don't partner with Satan. Well, that was clear. 
Because whether you use the word Satan, Satanas, or Diabolos, which is devil, it means accuser, false accuser, and adversary. Please don't help the devil do his job. In your own heart, you're our own worst enemy. Why are you helping him do his job? In your own heart, you're accusing yourself, falsely, I might add. Why are you helping him do his job? Is he not good at it? And he needs a little assistance. If he knocks you down, why are you still knocking you down? Because at some point, you got to take what he did and put him in the hands of your heavenly father and leave it there and say, I don't think they were right, Lord. Please tell me they're not right. And let him renew you and then lock it as truth. Amen? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I want to just pray for a group of you that I want to pray for those of you that um, are been your own worst enemy lately, that your brain has gone a little overboard and you're picking on yourself all the time. You're critical of you and you've allowed the enemy to constantly repeat the same things from your past over and over and over. If you have any of those challenges, can you stand up? I would love to pray for you. I'm just gonna pray a washing over your mind. Who in here needs some renewing of their mind, right? Maybe we've been picking on ourselves a little bit too much. Who else? Anybody else got that? Yeah, where we're always condemning ourselves and we're saying, I'm, I'm not good enough, I'm not that. Hold on. We're gonna pray God's truth into you, amen? Let's do that and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we are asking by standing, Lord, for a washing and renewal of our minds. We pray that you would remap our thoughts. We are stuck in a habit pattern where we are critical and condemning. Lord Jesus, we reject that in your powerful name. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you might renew it in a way that we start to believe your truth and only your truth and nothing but your truth. I pray, Lord, that the lies of the enemy me would be silenced right here, right now in the name of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would allow us to begin to dwell on your scripture. We would be able to memorize the truth, that thoughts from you would stick in there, and we would be able to repeat them throughout the day, and our spirits would be lightened and strong and healthy and whole. I pray, Lord, that those tapes from the past would be burned up, that, God, you would give us a new perspective, that you would allow us to see it, holding your hand and to know what is right and what is wrong. I pray that you would build us a filtering system so that we are not affirming the lies from the world, the flesh, the devil. That Lord, that we are only believing that which you tell us that is true. So God, we fall upon your altar and ask for a rinsing that we would stop harming ourselves. God, I pray that you would set us free in the name of Jesus. Amen.